This is The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, The Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, Weekend Warriors of Michigan Politics and Government. We already have our first guest on the line with us, and he is the one and only Bernie Porn, co-founder and president of Epic MRA, which is probably the most prominent polling firm in Michigan over the last several decades. Bernie Porn, thanks for being our guest. Always glad to be with you, Bill. Okay, Bernie, uh, your firm has done so many surveys, so many polls over such a long time. Usually in the public mind and I, based on statewide races for governor, U.S. Senate, that's where we usually see Epic MRA do their work and their results come up. But you have been doing, I think, for almost two decades, a poll of a different sort, I would say, for Michigan Information Research Service, MERS, as it's called, a subscription newsletter in Lansing, which really tests the opinions of so-called Lansing insiders, state capital insiders, people who ground state government, like legislators, legislative staff, public relations people, uh, trade association executives, lobbyists. Lobbyists. Yeah, lobbyists, big time. Um, And, you know, you've done this, I guess, every couple of years, and you just did one in May, I think between May 3rd and 16th. And just tell us what you saw in that poll and what were your main takeaways? Well, uh, of course, this poll is a little bit different than our normal poll where we call our uh, uh, database of registered voters statewide, uh, and that's usually on a bi-monthly uh, basis, but this is bi-yearly, and uh, we've done it 10 times, uh, the first time in, uh, I think, 2003, and every two years thereafter, and uh, in the early years, we had 300-plus uh, uh, participants, and this time, out of a little over 1,600 uh, people that uh, were invited uh, from the list by Truscott Rossman of uh, of all of those lobbyists and staff uh, uh, for the administration and the legislature and, and state government, uh, uh, we would be getting 300-plus uh, in the early years, and this time we got 694, which is a plus or minus only 3%. So that's a, a fantastic uh, a level of participation out of uh, uh, just uh, over double that uh, amount of uh, participants. And in the survey, we found that uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the we, we asked the positive, the positive job rating, negative job rating for uh, uh, all of the leaders. And uh, uh, Governor Gretchen Whitmer had a 51 to 48 percent positive job rating. But this, as well as all the others, are down from the from the previous two years. Uh, she was at 67 percent right after she took office in 2019. And uh, Garland Gilchrist, uh, Lieutenant Governor and President of the State Senate, he was at uh, actually higher, 54 to 44 percent positive rating. He was at 61. Uh, and Jason Wentworth, the Speaker, uh, uh, he was at 56 to 41 percent positive rating. And before that, Lee Chatfield was at uh, 69, so that's a 13-point a drop uh, uh, for the Speaker. 
Uh, Donald Lisinski uh, uh, was at 46 uh, favorable or positive, 50% negative, and it was 59% positive for uh, Christine Gregg. And Mike Shirky, I think he has taken a hit because uh, he was at 67% positive in 2019, and now he is at 64% uh, negative uh, uh, with 38% poor. And so I think some of uh, uh, his uh, activities and uh, I think some comments that he made may have had a uh, negative impact among the insiders in, uh, in this survey. And Jim Ananick, uh, he has the highest rating this time at 68% positive job rating, but he was at 75 percent. Uh, we also asked uh, uh, during uh, uh, in the 2022 gubernatorial election, how do you think uh, Governor Gretchen Whitmer's handling of the pandemic will impact her chances at re-election? And this was kind of surprising because 54 percent said that it will decrease her chances because people will see her efforts as too restrictive. And 35% said it will increase her chances because people see her efforts as proper. And 10% said that uh, it would have no impact. Uh, we also asked uh, what other issues other than the pandemic and roads uh, will uh, be associated with uh, Governor Whitmer in the election. And 48% uh, said that not working in a bipartisan way with the legislature would be uh, a top issue, with 25% saying uh, there are not uh, issues outside of the pandemic and roads uh, that will be tied to uh, the governor. 11% uh, said state finances, 7% uh, education funding, no-fault insurance at 6 And we also asked uh, about... Uh, uh, the bills being advanced in health care by Speaker Jason Wentworth, uh, whether they are likely to pass. And 55% of these respondents said that uh, they would be likely to pass. Uh, we also asked about who the insiders uh, in the survey uh, thought would uh, be nominated to run for governor, uh, attorney general, and secretary of state. And uh, I, after uh, the recent publicity of uh, the potential of a James Craig uh, candidacy. Uh, John James was selected as the top likely uh, uh, nominee by 38 percent, Rona Romney McDaniel by, McDaniel by 22 percent, and then James Craig, which is a little surprising to me. When we did a survey a couple of years ago, uh, he was at 75 percent positive job rating among Detroiters in a survey we did for the Free Press. And so uh, I think that's why they uh, uh, they thought, the leadership thought that James Craig may be a, a good choice, but uh, not so much among these uh, these insiders. Uh, uh, the nomination for uh, Attorney General, they thought it by 38 percent it would be former U.S. Attorney Matthew Snyder, uh, then uh, former Speaker Tom Leonard, and then uh, Macomb County Prosecutor Pete Lucido. And for Secretary of State against Jocelyn Benson, a strong uh, response of the thought that uh, Lisa Posthumus Lyon, Kent County Clerk, uh, would be uh, selected, followed by uh, uh, Representative Ann Boleyn of uh, Brighton. And uh, then uh, uh, we also asked which congressional district they think will end up being drawn out 
of uh, the uh, next redistricting process, and that was a close call. Twenty uh, percent thought the ninth congressional district, the eleventh seat, nineteen uh, percent the eleventh congressional Stevens seat, and nineteen percent uh, thought the seventh congressional, the Wahlberg seat, would be drawn out. Uh, and uh, when asked whether uh, the redistricting plan would uh, be challenged in court, almost unanimous, ninety-two percent said it would likely be challenged. <laughs> and then. Uh, like always, we ask uh, uh, who's the most effective member. We used to, uh, in the early years, ask about who's the most effective staff members and least effective staff members. This time, we just asked about uh, Republican and Democratic members of the House and Senate. And the most effective Republican member uh, was uh, Jason Wentworth at 26 percent, the Speaker, followed by Graham Filler uh, from DeWitt at 14 percent. Uh, and then the uh, most uh, effective Democratic member, uh, they said Donna Lisinski from Ann Arbor, followed by Joe Tate at uh, 15% from Detroit. And then most effective Republican member of the Michigan Senate, uh, this was a little bit surprising, Jim Stamos from uh, uh, Midland at 22%, closely followed by Eric Nesbitt from Lawton at 21%. Uh, and Mike Shirky, a uh, distant third at 13%. And then uh, the most effective Democratic member, it was not uh, the minority leader, uh, uh, Jim Ananick. Uh, it was Curtis Hertel narrowly edging out uh, Ananick, 35 to 34%. And the most effective member of the Michigan congressional delegation, uh, very close call here, uh, Alyssa Slotkin at 17%. Fred Upton at 16, Debbie Dingle at 15, and Dan Kildee at 14. I think Alyssa may be helped because uh, a lot of the respondents to this uh, survey are located in the greater Lansing area, and Alyssa Slotkin not only gets a lot of national coverage for her position, but she also gets probably more local coverage than either Fred Upton or Debbie Dingle or Dan Kildee. Yeah, we got to take a break here, but we want you to come back with still more statistics. Stay tuned for Bernie Porn, co-founder and president of Epic MRA. We'll be back in just a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back, and we are very lucky to have with us Bernie Porn, who is the co-founder and president of Epic MRA polling firm. And Bernie just rattled off a dazzling array of statistics in our first segment, but there's still more. So, Bernie, take it from here. There's more to go. (laughs) Yeah, take it from here. Well, uh, we asked uh, a number of questions about who the uh, uh, best lobbyists are and uh, and lobbying organizations, and one was, was uh, thinking about Lansing's membership organizations or associations, not multi-client firms. Uh, which one membership group do you think does the most effective lobbying job? And uh, the Michigan Chamber of Commerce, uh, at 20 percent, uh, uh, no other uh, uh, organization got uh, double digits, uh, uh, came in first, and this is for the eighth time 
over the 10 uh, surveys that we've done. And I think several years ago, I think the MEA was competitive, but uh, at this juncture, they're uh, at uh, 3%. So uh, they're not uh, nearly as competitive as they used to be. But uh, 8 out of 10 for the Michigan Chamber of Commerce. Then uh, name the individual lobbyist who works for a membership organization or association who you consider to be uh, most effective. And it wasn't the chamber. It was uh, uh, Kurt Berryman with the auto dealers, uh, followed by uh, Wendy Block uh, uh, at 5%. Kurt Berryman got 9%. Uh, Wendy Block with the chamber. And then uh, uh, Chris uh, Ackbarth uh, with the Municipal League. And then uh, Brian Kelly, the former lieutenant governor, uh, uh, with SBAM at uh, 3%. And uh, then the... the uh, individual who works for a single-issue lobbying organization and uh, who you consider to be most effective. Uh, Kurt Berriman came up uh, on top again with the auto dealers at 10%, followed by Alan Bolton uh, with the Community Mental Health Organization and uh, Dominic Pallone, uh, Michigan Association of Health Plans, uh, at 4 and 3% uh, respectively. And uh, we asked, thinking about uh, the multi-client lobbying organizations, which one organization do you think is, is the best and most effective? GCSI, uh, as they have uh, ranked the highest uh, for many years, uh, came in number one at 20%, followed by Karub Associates at 14 then Kelly Cawthorn at 12 uh, then much more Harrington Smalling Associates at 11 and uh, Public Affairs Associates at 10 with uh, the others uh, mentioned by uh, single digits. And then uh, uh, please name the one lobbyist who works for a multi-client firm who you think is most effective. Gary Owen uh, with GCSI came in narrowly first at 5% and then Bill Zagman also with GCSI. Uh, at 4%, Brandon, Brandon Ringlever with uh, Michigan Legislative Consultants at uh, 4 and uh, Brett Maher with much more, uh, and uh, Matt Kurtha, Kurtha at uh, Karub, and uh, Melissa uh, Yetzi McKinley uh, with Cawthorn, uh, Kelly Cawthorn, and then Mike Hawks with GCSI. Uh, so GCSI has been far and away the most uh, uh, successful in this area. And uh, the individual lobbyist who represents a corporation, Brian McConnell with uh, General Motors, came in first at 11%, uh, followed by Mark Cook with uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield at 9%, and Kathy uh, Wilson with Consumers at 7 and Gavin uh, Getz with AT&T at uh, 7%. And... Uh, uh, which public relations firm uh, do you consider to be the most effective? And trust Scott Rossman, uh, who, of course, uh, uh, we, we did use uh, their uh, uh, list of everybody, which is probably more, uh, 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 I think, uh, uh, covering uh, the, uh, the, the breadth of uh, state uh, contacts. Uh, we use that and then followed by rest strategies at 16%. Trust Scott Rossman, again, at 37%. Martin Waymer at 11 percent, and Byron Fisk at 9 percent. And then uh, uh, the one uh, public affairs professional in Lansing is the most effective at his or her job. Uh, Tr John Truscott came in first at 20 percent, followed by Matt Resch at 13, and Mark Fisk at 8, and John Selleck at 6 percent. And uh, 
then uh, which news organization do you think is most effective? Mears has been uh, the winner on this. Uh, uh, they got 57% this time. Uh, that's down a couple points from where it was before, I think, uh, but only it was like 59, 60%. Then followed by Gongwer, which is uh, usually the case, and then Bridge Magazine at 5%. And then the Detroit News. And then the uh, among the reporters in the Lansing Press Corps, which one reported do you believe is the most effective at his or her job? Uh, Kyle Malin uh, came in again at 19%, uh, uh, and he uh, uh, was followed by Chad Livengood at uh, 15%, and Zach Garchoff. Uh, at uh, 12, and Tim Skubik at 10. And I can remember in the early years, Tim uh, Skubik was uh, uh, far and away the, uh, the the winner of this, and uh, probably because of uh, the amount of uh, coverage uh, that uh, Mears provides uh, uh, over the years. Kyle has uh, uh, come up over the last few uh, surveys to uh, come in uh, number one, either tied or uh, uh, outright uh, number one. And uh, uh, and then uh, the breakout of uh, who participated, about 27% lobbyists, uh, 14% private sector, and then single digits for executive administration, lawyers, legislative staff, and so forth. And we had about 59% uh, male participate, participation in the uh, survey, and uh, the rest uh, female. Yeah, and yeah. that in the... Uh, but that, but that, that covers it. Now, interestingly enough, the last statewide survey we did did show for the governor some slippage in her favorability rating. It was she's at 49 favorable to 44 percent unfavorable, but her job rating was at 52 percent, which is almost identical to what the insider survey was. Okay, that's interesting. And by the way, I mean, going way back to your first survey, uh, like 2003, when Jennifer Granholm was governor, a Democrat, and you had a Republican-controlled legislature then, do you have any figures that show how Jennifer Granholm was doing at a comparable stage, or maybe in 2005 as well, compared to Gretchen Whitmer today? Well, believe it or not, uh, the 2005 uh, survey in which uh, 318 participated, uh, Jennifer Granholm, uh, uh, we didn't ask about positive or negative job rating. We asked about effectiveness. But 51%, which is identical to Whitmer's numbers, said that she was effective, 19% uh, very effective. Uh, and before that, uh, she was in the 60s uh, in the 2003 survey, uh, which is normal for a new governor. As a matter of fact, Snyder in his first year uh, in 2000, the 2011 survey was at 72%, which is uh, uh, five points higher than uh, Whitmer was in her f first year. So there's a lot of consistency between these, uh, these numbers. And uh, back in 2005, Ken Sikama was at 61% uh, effective, uh, and uh, Der Craig DeRoach, 53%, and 54 to 46% uh, less effective uh, for Diane Byram and Bob Emerson at 51-48 less effective. Yeah, it sounds like uh, there's a little fall-off uh, in the second um survey you do during a four-year span or four-year term for a governor. I mean, they all have uh, slightly declined uh, in favorability, whether it's uh, Jennifer Granholm or Gretchen Whitmer or Rick Snyder or whoever, right? Absolutely. And uh, that's a function of uh, the activities that are taking place, I think. 
Yeah, absolutely. Listen, Bernie, that is a fantastic rundown. Thank you so much uh, for everything. Anytime, Bill. I enjoy doing it. All right. We'll get you on again. Thank you so much, Bernie Porn, president of Epic MRA Polling. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we are fortunate to have with us Bob Schneider, who is a senior research associate with Citizens Research Council of Michigan. Bob Schneider, thanks for being our guest. Thanks for having me on, Bill. I appreciate uh, the opportunity. Okay. We're going to talk state budget right now. I know that sounds boring to a lot of people, but a year ago this time and just before, um, state government officials, including legislators, were in a near panic. They thought they were facing a $6 billion hole because of the arrival of the pandemic and a partial shutdown of economic activity in Michigan which lasted a long time, and instead that hole is gone, and we even have some extra revenue. And I just want to ask you, Bob Schneider, let's say that none of the federal anti-coronavirus stimulus money uh, that Michigan has gotten in the past year, none of the three COVID-19 packages uh, had... uh, been sent to Michigan, and Michigan had only its traditional budget money to work with since the spring of last year. What would the revenue flow look like now over the last year? Would it be the same as though COVID-19 never happened? In other words, did we really need the federal bailout? Sure, it's great to have it, but uh, what do you think? Yeah, yeah, I uh, I think the, the a key factor in this is that 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 the the federal stimulus, especially last year, the first couple rounds of federal stimulus, really have helped drive the revenue uh, the revenue uptick that we've seen over the last uh, couple revenue estimating conferences. So, in in you know a few reasons for that, states didn't need to redirect their income for direct you know COVID response. So, vaccinations, testing contact tracing, all that stuff was paid for out of those stimulus uh, provisions. Uh, Last year, when we thought, as you said, Bill, faced that $6 billion budget hole, the federal government uh, direct payments to states, we got a coronavirus relief fund payment. That combined with some enhanced Medicaid, the state's Medicaid system um, is paid for by the federal government and the state enhanced match from the federal government and that coronavirus relief fund payment helped us get rid of maybe two two and a half billion dollars of that uh, of that shortfall and all of that now feeds into the surplus that we're seeing but the biggest thing i think the biggest thing has been from those stimulus uh, provisions the first two rounds you know some of the individual and business assistance paycheck protection program businesses were able to make payroll uh, some businesses during the during the shutdown the stimulus checks that most of us got uh, over the last you know year um, have helped uh, prop up uh, disposable income, and then most of it, uh, most of all, I think it's the enhanced unemployment insurance benefits, um, expanded eligibility for unemployment insurance benefits, the uh, federal bonuses, you know, six hundred dollars a week at one point in time, now three hundred dollars a week through expected to continue through Labor Day. That all helped boost 
disposable income for uh, Michiganders, um, and that feeds into um, more spending and income and sales tax revenue for the state. When we look at um, how quickly we thought we were in a $6 billion hole, that's now gone, and it is. It's completely gone. Um, some of that is the economy's picked up quicker than we thought, but jobs are still down in Michigan from pre-COVID levels. A, a good chunk of that is all this extra stimulus coming into the state um, to help shore up um, disposable income and spending that, that you know that we rely on for our for our state revenue picture. If there's a piece of the stimulus, you know, this last round, everybody's talking now about the $11 billion that's coming to Michigan, the state of Michigan, and local governments under the American Rescue Plan. That piece um, probably is, as you said, maybe more of a nice to have, but um, it's not going to be needed uh, to, to, to fill in the void for revenues because we're already there. And, and none of that $11 billion is factored into these revenue estimates. So if there is a, a piece of the stimulus that, that, you know, some folks may say, well, maybe we went overboard. I, I think it's probably that that $11 billion that, that Michigan's getting um, along with other states and locals around the state, around the country. When we look at this $11 billion, in the final analysis, do you think all of that will actually be spent in Michigan when all is said and done? Or will some of it go back? to the federal government, maybe because we didn't meet deadlines or because uh, we tried to do things with it the federal government felt we shouldn't be doing and they withdraw the money or what? What do you think? I, I, I think we'll find ways to spend it. And there are a lot of good, you know, <laughs> I, there are a lot of good things you can use $11 billion to yeah. do, too. I mean, we talked about broadband expansion as, a, as an eligible water and sewer infrastructure. Um, and, and the interesting thing, so, uh, you know, our revenues have rebounded, but there was some Treasury guidance, U.S. Treasury guidance that came out a couple of weeks ago that states have been waiting for and locals have been waiting for um, that kind of outline, you know, OK, here's how here's here's how you can use this money um, and, and states and locals can use it to backfill for revenue loss from COVID. But when they talk about revenue loss, it's not an absolute like here's what your revenue was before the COVID pandemic and you can backfill for revenues you lost. You can actually they've asked states to go and, and track, OK, what was your pre-COVID revenue and then grow that, grow that by four, four point one percent. And that's basically the average three year average growth in state and local revenues pre-COVID. So they pulled that number from from that data. So we you know, as much as our revenues rebounded we haven't grown 4.1 percent from pre-covid levels that means we could uh, we could use this this new stimulus money to support general state budget needs and maybe then pull our state source revenues our general fund and things out and you know the legislature is interested i know in in depositing revenue into the unemployment insurance trust fund folks have talked about replenishing the rainy day fund paying down pension debt well, you can't use the federal government said you can't use the stimulus revenue for that, but you can use the stimulus revenue to shore up your budget and then pull your money out and use it for some of those things. Oh, wow. So the, there may be a path um, to accomplish some of these other things that you can't directly use the stimulus on um, by putting the stimulus into the budget for regular stuff and pulling the state money out and using it for some of this stuff that um, you know, I know the legislature and the administration are interested in. I think we'll find a way to spend the money. Well, 
How do you and the other people in state government look at what is likely to happen here in the next few weeks and months between the legislature and the governor? I mean, the governor just came out with some proposals yesterday on the way she would like to see some of this money spent. But the legislature is going to have some say about that. And as we all know, uh, the legislature and the governor have been at loggerheads uh, at various steps along the way over the last three years, even before coronavirus. So what do you think is likely to happen? You know, you know, we're looking at a July 1st budget deadline. Um, To be to be clear, the stimulus, the stimulus dollars don't need to be spent till uh, calendar year 2024. Um, So we have time um, to decide on a path for that revenue. Um, but I, you know, I, I think both the legislature and the governor uh, would like to show they're able to get along. They're able to come to a, a budget agreement. You know, Bill, right now there are uh, probably discussions going on, on on target setting for the budget. How much, you know, how much are we going to spend on corrections? How much are we going to spend on uh, state police, how much are we going to spend on uh, health and human services that set the framework for finalizing the FY22 budget. I think, you know, spe- finding ways to spend billions of extra dollars is a lot easier than finding, you know, ways to cut billions of dollars <laughs> from the budget. I think both sides would like a win here. And um, I think it, we, we may not have a, a plan for all this new stimulus money, but I think that there's that, there's probably a likelihood that the governor and the and legislative leadership can sit down, work out these this budget framework, and I would bet we we probably actually have a budget by July first. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna bet on the confidence side there. You're gonna be an optimist, huh? Okay. Well, we need some optimism as much as we can get, and I want to thank you, Bob Schneider, senior research associate with Citizens Research Council Michigan for being our guest and giving a great overview of what is happening with all the stimulus money and the extra money that state government has to work with going forward. Thank you, Bob Schneider. Thank you, Bill. Appreciate being on. We'll be back in a minute. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. Here we are again, and we have on the line with us Rob L. Henneke. He is a longtime partner with Kelly Cawthorn Lobbying and Law Firm in Lansing, very prominent firm. Rob L. Henneke, thanks for being our guest. Thanks for having me. Okay, Uh, Rob, you know, I want to surprise our listeners by saying I want to talk to you about horse racing. Uh, Tomorrow is the Belmont Stakes, the final third jewel in the Triple Crown for thoroughbred horse racing in America. But horse racing's in a lot of trouble around the country, it seems, because of various bad things that have happened, like the deaths of horses at Santa Anita Racetrack in California a couple of years ago, like uh, drug tests that have gone bad, uh, including on the Kentucky Derby winner, uh, Medina Spirit. But you're somebody who has not lost faith in American horse racing. In fact, you have invested in a horse. And you are part owner of I, a, a an up-and-coming filly who we may see in action next year. So tell me about it. 
Well, uh, you are exactly right. I have not lost faith uh, in the sport. I think, uh, uh, I think like a lot of sports, uh, you know, various things happen that, uh, that catch people's interest or, or are controversial. But, uh, uh, you know, horse racing has a, obviously a long history. Uh, my history with it is uh, I knew what a horse looked like. Uh, I then went to undergrad at the <laughs> University of Kentucky, and, uh, and after my first trip to Keeneland, I was, uh, I was hooked. And uh, I said, this, this is amazing. Uh, growing up in Kalamazoo, I didn't have a lot of, uh, uh, you know, a lot of exposure uh, other than, you know, uh, the first Saturday in May, maybe catching a derby when I was in my teens. But uh, uh, I really, really enjoyed, you know, just the, the atmosphere and, and everything surrounding it. And, uh, and so it's been a number of years since, uh, since that fateful day in the early 90s that I stepped foot in Keeneland. But uh, uh, I was able to make a number of friends who, who continued in the industry down there and continue working in the industry now. Uh, I had a number of opportunities to, to invest in, uh, in a couple of horses over the years. Uh, and my buddy Jay, uh, who works in equine law down there, said, I'm never going to ask you again if you don't take advantage of this one right here. And he's invested in, in in probably ten or fifteen horses over the years, and and done done fairly well for himself. And uh, and I I finally decided to take him up on the offer this year. So uh, so yes, I am the proud owner of one sixteenth of uh, of a horse named Jerusalem. I had nothing to do with the name of it, but uh, uh, the blocks <laughs> are are fantastic on it. Uh, mother was a uh, uh, was a stakes champion. Uh, the father uh, super saver. I'm sure you remember oh, Bill yeah. from the uh, great horse, great 2010 sire. Uh, Kentucky Derby, yeah. great sire, yeah. and uh, and and uh, like a lot of uh, like a lot of things, I am uh, uh, I am just sitting back listening to those who know way more than me, and uh, I enjoy the videos they send me, and the horses in Florida right now uh, training. Uh, we have a new trainer um, who who actually isn't that new, uh, but uh, but his first Derby uh, horse uh, ran in seventeen, and uh, he's an Irishman by the name of uh, Brendan Walsh, and uh, and really one of kind of an up and coming trainers, and he is super excited about this uh, this filly. So therefore, I'm super excited about this filly. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let me ask you about the Belmont Stakes tomorrow. I mean, one of the amazing things about it is the most famous trainer in America, Bob Baffert has been barred from having any horses in this race because of the test on uh, Medina Spirit after winning, uh, we still don't know if it's official, the Kentucky Derby uh, last month. Um, And what do you think is likely to happen, Uh, either with the test on the Derby, with Bob Baffert, uh, and racing in general? I think I think we're probably going to be looking at some uh, some scrutiny. Uh, you know, uh, interestingly, you know, horses aren't the only athletes that uh, that you know drug testing is uh, is an issue with. Uh, you know, we've got the Olympics coming up, uh, hopefully in uh, in Tokyo, and uh, you know that always seems to bring out uh, you know a fair amount of testing. Uh, you know, in in terms of uh, in terms of the sport of horse racing. You know, there's there's lots of there's lots of uh, drugs that these that these horses are taking on a on a regular basis. Um, you know, some seem uh, to be to be you know banned, and 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 others are not. Uh, I'm I'm not an expert by any means in uh, in veterinary medicine, uh, but uh, but I do know that uh, uh, you know the increased scrutiny probably is just going to bring uh, you know more transparency to the to the sport itself. 
and uh, and and I guess we'll have to see. Um, I've I've read with interest, uh, just like you, I'm sure the uh, the Baffert stories, and and I've been kind of curious what uh, what was going to uh, you know come out of this. Um, I choose to look at it as an opportunity. Uh, you know, again, I go back to you know this this younger trainer. There's a lot of uh, uh, there's a lot of um, you know, talent in the in the industry out there. Uh, you don't just have to be Bob Baffert. I mean, obviously, he's had a lot of success, but there are a lot of other great trainers out there who are doing things the uh, uh, the right way, and I'm I'm glad to be associated with them. Do you think that drugs uh, eventually are going to end up being banned? Uh, any sort of drug? I mean, the drug that there was a positive test on Medina Spirit for actually was a legal drug to be in a horse. It's just that there was too much of it, according to the test. Um, exactly, exactly. And, uh, and and I don't, you know, I've, I've read, you know, some some stories out there that, that said, you know, this, this is a tried and true kind of therapeutic for, for the horses out there. I know just friends of mine who have, uh, you know, non-thoroughbred horses and whatnot, uh, you know, have talked to me over the years about their vet bills and, you know, what they, you know, what they, uh, what they have to provide to their horses. And shoot, I, I know, I know what I've spent on drugs for my dogs over the, over the uh, 10 months that I've had them right there. So uh, I, I really don't know what direction it's going to go in, in terms of banned substances. Um, you know, also being a fan of other sports, you know, I've seen, I've seen, you know, there was a player for the Lions yesterday who suspended for the first three games of the season for a uh, uh, for something from the NFL banned list. And sometimes things that were once banned are now not, and, and vice versa. Uh, and and again, you know, Bill, this isn't a new thing. Uh, you know, there's been there's been drugs in sports since before there were TV in sports. And I think it's just kind of creating the right balance of what uh, uh, what's going to be legal and what's not. Yeah, are you optimistic that we'll eventually get thoroughbred racing back in Michigan? I mean, we were once well-known as being a really pretty good thoroughbred racing state. We still got one harness racing track in Michigan, but we have no thoroughbred racing. Do you think it'll ever be able to come back? Boy, I sure hope so. And, you know, I've, I've, I've worked on the, on the issues with that, uh, you know, going back to when Frank Stronach was looking at building, you know, a super track in, uh, in Romulus there. Uh, you know, unfortunately, that never that never occurred. Uh, I think the you know, the the political winds have uh, have have changed quite a bit. Uh, legal sports gambling, I think, is is a good thing for for horse racing. Uh, I think as people start to, uh, you know, spend more time looking at that as, as a form of entertainment that, uh, that hopefully it will come back. Uh, you know, whenever we see, you know, for instance, a triple crown winner, uh, you know, that seems to get people's attention. Uh, I'd, I'd like it if the Breeders' Cup kind of caught on a little bit more. Uh, but, uh, but I think as people start to, you know, get more engaged and more involved in, uh, in legal sports gaming, uh, horse racing will find its place. It'll find its niche. It might never be what it once was because for a while it seemed it was the, you know, for years it was the only game in town. But, but I think it can find a place in, uh, in this market. And I think people can start to, uh, uh, you know, look at it again as, uh, as, as a form of entertainment. And, and if that happens, I can only hope that, uh, that we see, you know, new tracks being developed. And, uh, you know, what happened in Santa Anita obviously was, was not uh, good for the sport. Uh, you know, there is that element of risk. Uh, but that element of risk exists in all kinds of sports. I mean, I saw a horrific uh, situation last night in a minor league baseball game in uh, Durham, North Carolina, where a pitcher was hit on the uh, on the mound. 
And, you know, there's, there's, you know, tragic things that happen when, when people are doing physical activities right there. But overall, I believe the sport of horse racing is, uh, is, is safe. Um, it's, it's majestic. It has a great history. And, and I just hope that, uh, as new generations, you know, become involved in, in particularly the gaming aspects of sports that, uh, the horse racing, you know, makes a comeback and, and, uh, and hopefully sees, uh, some relevance again. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, Horse racing was once the only game in town in terms of gambling in this state. It was hurt by the lottery and casinos, but maybe sports betting, ironically, may actually help it come back, right? I I think so. Uh, You know, I know I've got a number of friends of mine that, uh, uh, you know, have have dedicated a a lot of their time and energy to – uh, sports gaming overall in 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 the state. Uh, you know, I've got I've got my good friend Quaho who runs a, who runs a website on there. Uh, you know, giving uh, giving advice. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's a fantastic. Well, uh, uh, we got to get out. Time. We got to get out now. But listen, thank you, Rob L. Henneke. You did a great job of explaining the situation with thoroughbred horse racing. Thank you so much for being our guest. We'll be back next week with more.